I'll stand with me as we rise together this morning and read part of our sermon text from Daniel chapter 3. I hope you have a Bible with you. And if you don't, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you and you'll find uh, this morning's text on page 739. And we are going to make our way through the entirety of chapter 3, but what I want to do is just take you in our scripture reading through the first half of the passage to the question that King Nebuchadnezzar asks of these three young Hebrew men in verse 15. So let me read those first 15 verses for us and then pray for our time and we will begin together. So listen as God does speak to you once again through his powerful word. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, and the justices, and the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. They stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace." Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever! You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Thus far the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we ask that you would this day, that you would deliver us from distraction, that you would deliver us from any sort of temptation that would keep us from listening to your truth. And that you would speak to us mercifully and clearly on what we need to hear today by your Spirit. 
that our eyes might be raised to Jesus Christ, the King who alone is worthy of our worship, the King who alone can deliver us. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's true, isn't it, that some of the most famous stories, some of the most famous tales, some of the most captivating accounts that belong to all literature and film and other forms of art tend to be rescue stories. Uh, you can think, can't you, about how so many of the most famous movies, so many of the most famous books, so many of the most famous narratives at their core are a little more than the account of someone being delivered from the brink And historically speaking, in the last 100 years, perhaps one of the most famous stories of rescue uh, that's belonged to military history came in 1940. It was at that time in May of that year that the Allied armies uh, were pinned down at a beach in Dunkirk. Uh, They had fallen prey to Hitler's blitzkrieg attack throughout the land there in France. And as they were pinned against the beach there in Dunkirk, planes would fly overhead from the German Luftwaffe, the, the Air Force. And they would drop these leaflets by the thousands and thousands upon the troops and the commanders saying, you must surrender, otherwise you're going to face total destruction. And while all the watching world, certainly in the Western English-speaking world, was waiting with bated breath to, to hear news about the expected annihilation of the British Expeditionary Force, it was on the night of May 25th that a commander in the English Army uh, delivered a three-word telegram to the powers that be back in England. Uh, it was a three-word telegram that was somewhat cryptic and rather mysterious for many who would read it. That simply said, but if not. And it was, of course, just not long later that instead of hearing news of this army's destruction there at the beaches of Dunkirk, uh, what, in, what came along instead was the miraculous deliverance of these very people that historians have now called the miracle there at Dunkirk. And I wonder if someone sent you a text or an email, you know, modern-day forms of a telegram, in the midst of a situation of distress, in the midst of a situation where you needed deliverance, and it was just that mysterious three-word phrase, but if not, would you know where it came from? Uh, Many people in England in 1940 knew exactly where it came from, Daniel 3, and knew exactly why the English commander would have sent it. Salvation isn't promised to us here on the beach. Nevertheless, we're not going to surrender. And that's what you're going to find this morning, won't you, with these three young Hebrew men cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Because what we have in front of us today in Daniel chapter 3 is no doubt, it's one of the most famous stories, isn't it? And not just in the Old Testament, it's one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. These men delivered from the burning furnace. It's the story, isn't it, of courage under fire, original courage under fire. It's the story of of how men are not willing to to bow down before a worldly power, not willing to bow down before a false god, instead willing to be burned up. Men who are offered the palace there in the world, uh, they'd rather prefer because of obedience, a furnace of fire, uh, trusting that the Lord's presence was going to be with them. And it's a story that many of you know, of course, uh, that the watching world, if they're to hear about these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they find it altogether unbelievable what's in front of you this morning in Daniel chapter 3. 
Uh, kids, I want you to understand, and I hope you have realized this before, uh, that so much of we, what we call the Christian gospel is this good news. It is kind of unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, you mean to tell me that God's son uh, came down from heaven to be born of a Virgin Mary, that he was going to live perfectly, never once in thought, word, or deed breaking God's law. That he would willingly and lovingly go to hang on the cursed cross, a crucified Savior, put in the grave three days later, rising from that very grave, 40 days later, ascending to the Father's right hand in heaven, where he's still ruling and reigning and calling people around the world to bow before him. Now, I would submit to you today, if you can believe all of that, and you must, if you would know eternal life, you can believe that God would save three men from a burning, fiery furnace. Because the text that's in front of you actually has two pretty distinct halves. Uh, you have in the first part, one king's demand. As we left off, even in the scripture reading, there's this self-sufficiency and self-sovereignty that belongs to Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. Who's going to deliver you out of my hands? And the second half of the text says, well, there is a king who can deliver so I want you to see not just one king's demand, I want you to see in the second half, the king's deliverance. And it's all meant to show us that this kingly reality uh, that belongs to the chapter in front of us. Because one king wants to be worshipped. And we're going to see there's a one king alone who is worthy of worship. One king thinks deliverance is impossible outside of his hands. Of course, we find out there actually is one king who alone can deliver people from a fiery furnace. So the simple idea that I have before you in our text today is the king who is worthy of worship. And you want to see that. And before we get to verse 1 of chapter 3, if you weren't with us last week, it's important for you to recognize what happened in Daniel chapter 2 before you get to Daniel chapter 3, because none of what Nebuchadnezzar does with his statue, I think, makes sense without the dream, this nightmare that plagued him and troubled him so greatly in chapter 2. Uh, children, you might remember he had this nightmare of this, this statue, this, this, this troubling dream of this statue that kind of came in four parts. The head was gold, the chest and the arms were silver, uh, the belly and the thighs were bronze, and then from the knee down it was iron and clay. And, and no one throughout all of the Babylonian empire could, could answer Nebuchadnezzar's demand for that dream being interpreted until Daniel shows up and interprets the dream because God had given him the insight. And he simply said that the, the four materials that belong to that terrifyingly bright statue in your dream, Nebuchadnezzar, they just represent four different kingdoms. One will pass into the next. And by the time you get down to the bottom, which we said was the Roman Empire, the text tells us that there was a stone, not fashioned by human hands, that would come and strike and shatter that kingdom. Because it's his kingdom that he was going to establish, and it was his kingdom that would rule all other kingdoms. And we said, of course, at that rock and that cornerstone, not fashioned by human hands, it was none other than Jesus Christ who comes and sets up his kingdom that rules all others. And you need to have that dream in the back of your mind as you get to one king's demand, beginning, notice verse 1 of chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, students, I want you to see three things from this one vital verse. The first is the substance. You see this image is made of gold. Now, reflect back to chapter 2. Uh, Daniel's interpretation said, You, King Nebuchadnezzar, 
You're the head that is made of gold. You're this first kingdom. That in time is going to give way to another kingdom. One represented by silver. One that we said was the Medo-Persians, whom we're going to greet soon enough in this book of Daniel. And it's almost as though, however much time has passed, scholars would say it could be nine years later, chapter 3 begins after chapter 2, could even be as many as 18 years later, depending on how you want to date certain things. But some time has passed, and it seems as though Nebuchadnezzar is intent on not just reversing the meaning of the dream, uh, but guaranteeing it's null and void in his mind. Because, of course, it was only part of the statue that was gold. And now he's building an entire statue of gold from top to bottom, seemingly saying that, no, my word is going to prevail over God's word. He's trying to render God's word as, as useless and meaningless. And I wonder if you've ever been at a place in your life where you have tried to prove God's word wrong. Uh, if you've tried to render it meaningless in your life. And I wonder how that has gone for you. It's not just the substance you need to pay attention to. It's also the size. You see, it talks about cubits. And of course, we don't understand exactly what cubits are in our time and space. So kids, all you need to think about with these cubits, it's telling us that this tower he's building, this statue he's building, is 90 feet high by 9 feet wide. And we have no idea if it looked like this very tall and very thin Nebuchadnezzar or if it's something like an ancient obelisk on which just a statue of Nebuchadnezzar sat at the top. Whatever it was, it was this giant tower full of gold. And notice also the situation. It's there in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. I'm sure you can think, can't you, if you know your Old Testament well, of another time, of another tower made in the area of Dura in Babylon. All the way back in the book of Genesis, a very large tower was built, wasn't it? Kids, we refer to as the Tower of Babel. Uh, this tower that was built in order that a people might get a name for themselves in that ancient world. And in quite a similar way, here's Nebuchadnezzar building a tower that's going to stretch up to heaven because he wants a name for himself. And as so many petty, insecure kings throughout the ages have done, he commands that he gets a name for himself. Look at what the herald preaches in verse 4 and 5 and 6. He says, you're commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down will worship, and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So here it is, a worldly power compelling people Certainly, if you think about the Jewish exiles there in Babylon at the time, there's a confrontation here over God's commandments, isn't there? For that first word that they had heard from the Lord at Mount Sinai was, you shall have no other gods before me. The third word was what? You shall not bow down before a graven image, before an idol. And here is a king in the world coming and saying, you must bow down before me as a god. You must bow down before my statue, this idol that I have created. You must reject all that you believe is true. You must reject all that God says is right under the pain of a burning, fiery furnace. And it's quite interesting the way that the text um, underscores this. You may have noticed as I was reading it earlier, there's tons of repetition in the first half in particular. 
with things being set up, with instruments being played. And it underscores kind of the madness and the mindlessness that belong to the scene because it goes exactly how we would expect, wouldn't it? You see verse 7, the call to worship goes out and we're told that peoples and nations and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Uh, the original language almost kind of has this way of reading it that's, that seems to be like as soon as they were hearing, they were falling down. It's portraying this, this immediacy that belonged to all of the people uh, worshiping the pagan king in that moment. It's almost as one scholar says, they're being painted there as mindless human robots worshiping a ruler there on earth. And I trust that I mean, you know your human history well enough that, that every generation faces, don't they? That temptation to mindlessly worship powers in the world, to robotically bow before the spirit of the age. And so much of church history has shown that during such generations, throughout such ages, there's no small number of professing Christians even that rather mindlessly, robotically, will bow before the spirit of the age. A part of the good news of God's preservation of his church is that he always has a remnant of people that he's set aside, that he's preserving, that he's protecting. And surprisingly, amidst all of the Jewish exiles that would have been in that area of Babylon at the time, surely then gathered around that large statue, the text tells us that God's remnant there in Babylon in this moment, at least in this scene, is only three people strong and three people that stood up, three people that therefore stood out. And students, I hope that you understand that you live in a time where to stand up for Jesus Christ is to stand out for Jesus Christ. Uh, that you can even have many professing friends that bow before the spirit of the age, but the Lord says, no, you must stand up when others are falling down. You must speak up when others are quiet and trust and know that the watching world doesn't like such Christian courage, do they? Because you see what we're told in verse 8, that certain Chaldeans came forward, maliciously accused the Jews. There's this clear tone of jealousy uh, that belongs to uh, the passage. They go on and say, notice verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, they pay no attention to you, they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So it's clear, isn't it? If you notice there in verse 12, it's almost like these uh, men are lackeys, these Chaldeans in the king's service as they're just stroking his ego, simply saying there at the end, if you underscore the pronoun, they don't pay any attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Interestingly enough, these men that you have appointed, Nebuchadnezzar. And so his face is burning with rage. His emotions are heating up. And you'll see in the next few verses, he confronts these three men that he has appointed. And he basically says, you need another chance, don't you? And I'm generous enough to give you another chance. So when the call to worship goes out, uh, you need to bow down. You need to fall down. You, you need to worship me as verse 15 ends once again. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So the confrontation of the commandment to children is simply this. Revere me or roast. 
Because no one's going to save you. That's one king's demand. A king who thinks he's sovereign. He's sufficient. He alone can save. But what's Nebuchadnezzar getting ready to find out? That there is a king who is sovereign, saving, and sufficient. And it's not him. So we get to the king's deliverance in the second part of the passage. Uh, there are these wonderful stories that belong to the history of, of Christian martyrs, of, of Christians facing fire, death by fire, uh, with, with courage and profound bravery. Uh, probably the earliest and perhaps even the most famous such martyr uh, was a man named Polycarp, um, one that scholars have dubbed the unforgettable martyr. Such was his witness. So the year would have been something like 155 AD. He was in the crosshairs of the Roman Empire at the time. This man who was the bishop there in Smyrna. This man who was a disciple of the Apostle John. And when they arrested Polycarp, the proconsul there in the area began this interrogation with him saying, a little more than you need to bow before Caesar or burn. That you must recognize that Caesar is Lord. Otherwise you're going to be executed. Now, somewhere along the way, history records part of their conversation as the proconsul saying, I shall have you consumed with fire unless you change your mind. Old Polycarp responds in this way. Quote, The fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little, for you do not know the fire of the coming judgment and everlasting punishment that is laid up for the impious. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. And so he was burned. He was killed for his witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've often wondered throughout the ages, uh, I read through that story of Polycarp's martyrdom perhaps more than you might possibly realize. I wonder how much in the course of this conversation that history records with much more dialogue to it. If in that midst of his courage, he didn't find some encouragement from the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because you see what happens in the second part of our passage. Verse 16, they answered in this way and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we will serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us also out of your hand, O king, but if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It's this convicting and challenging portrait, isn't it, of, of true Christian courage in the face of temptation, even in the face of death? Because, students, I want you to notice that there are two things on which there faith hangs in this moment as they speak these simple words to Nebuchadnezzar. You see, first they have faith in God's power. They simply say, He is able. He is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. It's this faith in God's power. It's this faith in God's ability. He can do it. And I suppose it's true, isn't it, that even in this room today, every one of you sits in here uh, for reasons I might know, for reasons I might not know, uh, that you, you need some type of deliverance from the Lord. Uh, that you could sit in here today and you could be weak, you could be weary. Uh, you could be wondering, not 
just if you have the strength to make it to tomorrow, that you have the strength to be faithful today. Do you have faith in God's power that he's able to deliver you? Maybe you're beaten and broken down. The good news of Jesus Christ is he is able to deliver you. Maybe you're facing this secret sin that has rule over your life, has gained mastery over your soul, and you seem to think it's utterly impossible to slay and to put to death this transgression that so plagues me. He is able to deliver you. Or perhaps you recognize that your sin deserves God's just punishment, his everlasting wrath falling upon you. He is able to deliver you. And you see, they have faith not just only in, of course, God's power, but God's provision. As they say, again, look at verse 17 and 18. He's able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. But if not, O king, we still will not bow down to you. It's hard to know exactly what these three men would have meant by that wonderful three-word phrase, but if not. Uh, I think it's probably best that they, they realize if God doesn't deliver them from the fire, he will deliver them through the fire. And even in this simple, simple scene, these are the only words that are recorded in all of Scripture from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, what you get from these brothers is, is simple, gospel, truth-filled encouragement for how you can endure. I wonder if you stand today, sit here today, having faith in God's power, understanding that there is a provision made available to you. But you got a picture in this moment, King Nebuchadnezzar. Here is the ruler of the known world as he would see it at the time. He who is almighty, he who is all-powerful, he who is all-worthy of worship. His three, remember the story of what we've seen in previous weeks, his three hand-picked men. Uh, we know this from earlier in the book. These men he specifically picked for power in Babylon. These men who demonstrated ten times the ability as anyone else in Babylon. And they have the temerity. They have the gall to show up to Nebuchadnezzar and say, we really don't need to say anything to you about this, Nebuchadnezzar. God's going to deliver us. Burn us up. Let's see what happens. And so you can see the rage in his face. And now overflows externally, as the text tells us, if you glance down to verse 19, that he orders the furnace heated seven times more than was usually heated. Kids, that's just an old way of saying he turned it up as hot as it could possibly go. And he even kind of went or forewent the normal way of stripping them and shaming them as naked, throwing them into the means of their execution. You see, he even leads them clothed in verse 21, bound towards that firing furnace. Perhaps he thought they needed some type of accelerant for uh, the torch that was soon going to commence in, in his mind, but there was no need, no doubt, was there for accelerant because you'll see even in verse 22, the mighty men ordered to take them towards the furnace. It's so hot that they get there and they burn to death. And you'll notice verse 23, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. We don't know how far away Nebuchadnezzar would have been from whatever his window was into the fiery furnace. Certainly he was close enough to see quite vividly what's going on in front of him there. And the text tells us that he soon becomes troubled because he sees something that shouldn't be there. Or actually, it's better said, isn't it? He sees someone who shouldn't be there. You see verse 24. 
He was astonished. He rose up in haste and declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They said, yeah, we did. He says, verse 25, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. They are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint, actually uh, translates verse 24 in a way that says, what first caught Nebuchadnezzar's attention was not so much what he saw, but what he heard, as the Septuagint speaks about him hearing singing from the fire. And if that actually was the case, I mean, it would be certainly uh, something that fits with the long-established pattern that God's faithful people tend to be people who sing through their suffering. Because I would have you recognize today, you can even go home and do this and it would be a profitable Lord's Day activity. You can just kind of sit and meditate on these verses. And you would find this ocean of spiritual truth that would give you uh, truth about a spirituality of suffering. Just in the, the experience here of Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego. Because consider all of the things that this simple story teaches us about ordinary Christian experience of life in the world. Number one, the world tempts us to reject what we know is true. You might say number two, the world means to harm us. You'd also say that suffering frees us from earthly bonds. For the text tells us that what Nebuchadnezzar saw was these men who were bound, certainly by their feet, no doubt. They're not walking about in the midst of their affliction. And that sometimes, even in God's providence, he uses suffering to free us from our earthly bonds. We could also say, couldn't we, that we see God's people standing and walking through the trial? Do you know in God's support you can, you can live? That you, that you can stand and walk through any affliction you might face? But perhaps most significantly in this passage, and most movingly what we do see, is that God doesn't promise to keep us from the fire. But he does promise to be with you in the fire. That's what Nebuchadnezzar says is, I see someone in there, like a son of the gods, this mysterious and majestic figure. And I'm not so sure we could ever be so dogmatic to say it's absolutely guaranteed to be a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. But just know that most Christians throughout the centuries have understood it to be such. And wouldn't it be so like God's son to draw near to his people in that moment when they need him most? To be right next to them. And, and certainly that's one of the sweetest things that you can hear along the way this morning. Is that when God casts you into the furnace of affliction. When God sends you into the fiery trial. If you know the Lord Jesus. Well, what you know is he's right next to you. By his spirit he even dwells within your very heart. That you might be able to stand. That you might be able to walk. That you might be able to live. But the worst news. That you could hear this morning is that if you don't know Jesus Christ, there is a fire that's waiting you for all eternity. It's a fire that burns more than seven times what Nebuchadnezzar can ramp up. It's a fire of God's eternal torment. It's a fire of God's eternal judgment. It's a fire that no one will stand next to you in if you continue to reject the Savior. But the great good news of Jesus Christ is that he, in his love for sinners like you, he endured the fiery torment of sin's affliction on the cursed cross at Calvary. He drank that cup of God's wrath to the very bottom so that people might you might 
be delivered from the furnace of hell forever, and that you might enjoy a Savior even now, walking with you through all the trials of your life. It was about 10 days or so ago that we were burning some branches and twigs and various wood in our backyard. and uh, The younger children particularly enjoy stoking uh, the burn pile uh, to ensure that everything gets smoldered down to the appropriate amount of ash. And so as I was seated on the couch later on the day, Boston came inside, our youngest, and he sat down next to me. And I looked at him and said, you smell. And he looked at me and I was like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you smell like smoke. I've just been around the burn pit for long enough. And amazingly, part of this miracle there in Babylon is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're delivered from the fire, and you would never know they were even in it. Look at what the text tells us in verse 27. The satraps, prefects, governors, and king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of the fire had come upon them. Theirs was complete deliverance. Of course, it demanded a response from Nebuchadnezzar. Look at what he says in verse 28. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's demand and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. There is one king who is worthy of worship. There is one king who is able to deliver from fire. There is one king in whom you must trust, one king before whom you must bow. I think one of my favorite stories is certainly one of the most oft-quoted stories related to preaching courageously. God's truth to worldly power comes from the 16th century. In the mid-1550s, there was this great pastor in Edinburgh, Scotland named Robert Bruce and he was well-known not just for, for preaching God's truth, uh, but preaching God's truth so courageously that it upset the worldly powers at the time. And so there in the 1550s, he would, in the midst of this, this scuffle, this kind of uh, public, I don't know what you could call it, spat with King James VI. And according to the custom at the time, it was quite normal for, for monarchs such as King James to visit, you know, these large churches in the land. And so King James VI, one Sunday morning, came to St. Giles Cathedral there in Edinburgh. And he came with his entourage, and he, he sat up in, in, in the gallery in what we might call a balcony. And Robert Bruce was preaching. And somewhere along the way early in, in the sermon, uh, King James gave some sort of a signal to his entourage. And they began this commotion of conversation intent on interrupting Robert Bruce. So he stops preaching and, they stop talking. After a few seconds, he starts preaching again. They start talking again. This happened a few times. But eventually, he stopped. They stopped. And he turned. And he looked at King James VI in the eye. And if I can adjust the language just a little bit to make it sound more modern, it would sound something like this. You know, King, it's said to be one of the wisest sayings in all the earth that when the king of beasts roars, all of the beasts are quiet. And the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's roaring in the preaching of his gospel. And it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent before him. Courage, isn't it? Boldness and bravery, 
in the midst of a trial. What I want you to see as we begin to close is two final things from our passage. And the first of which is that God's kingdom is seen when exiles bear witness to the truth. God's kingdom is seen when exiles bear witness to the truth. Uh, we've said in recent weeks that so much of, of the point of Daniel is to help us understand how God's kingdom is still moving. God's kingdom is still advancing, even when his people find themselves in exile. Uh, when they find themselves in a land that's not their own. Uh, when they find themselves underneath a kingdom that is not their own. When they find themselves in a home that really isn't their own. Uh, how do exiles, how can exiles even bear witness to the kingdom? Well, they speak the truth, don't they? And through such declarations of God's truth, what, what do you begin to see, not just see, what do you begin to hear is God's kingdom advancing? Students and children, one of the most ordinary ways uh, that you can help friends, peers, classmates, teammates understand that there is one kingdom that rules all other kingdoms. And even though the world can't see it in the same way, they can hear it, can't they? As you bear witness to the truth about Jesus Christ, as you bear witness to the King who deserves all of your trust and adoration, I wonder what you've recently laid aside what recently you have set aside riskily in order to follow Jesus obediently and fully. So the text is telling us that God's kingdom is seen and his exiles bear witness to the truth. Uh, but I think most centrally it's telling us, isn't it this? That God's kingdom is seen when his exiles worship the king. Because if you were to scan through the first 13 verses of this passage, what you would see is this word repeated ten times. Image, image, image. A worldly king setting up an image, demanding that all people, all nations worship him. Do you know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God? Set up on a cursed tree on the Mount of Calvary by the Father, commanding all nations to what? Fall down and, and worship him. Because he alone is worthy of worship because he alone can deliver people who fall down even now. I trust you will do so today in worship to this king. What you are doing is nothing more than joining in what Revelation 7 says is the delight of heaven's song. As even Revelation 7:16 says, they rejoice all nations of the earth and the lamb who delivered them from any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. That lamb is the only king. That lamb is the only king who is therefore able to deliver, who is therefore worthy of all of your worship. Let's pray together. Father, we want to be a people who know what it means to follow you courageously, to look to you earnestly, to cling to you completely. Let us know something of the deliverance of Jesus Christ in the midst of our state and situation this day, that we would know that he is our only king who can deliver. Cast our eyes upon him, we pray, asking it all in his precious name. Amen.